Welcome to the Hamiltonian Podcast, where we seek to explore various perspectives from top experts, journalists, practitioners, politicians, and academics on the top foreign policy issues facing America today. I'm Gabe Scheinman, the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. Welcome, everybody. My name is Gabe Scheinman. I'm the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. It's great to have a lot of students, alumni, faculty, and others here with us today. For those who might be tuning in for the first time, AHS is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit national organization that seeks to identify, educate, and launch young men and women into the foreign policy and national security world, imbued with the Hamiltonian perspective of strong and principled American leadership in global affairs. We operate first and foremost on college campuses across the country, as well as in Washington, D.C., and New York, and through our other professional chapters. If you're interested in getting to know more or getting involved, you can go to alexanderhamiltonsociety.org. And today, in particular, actually, it's a real pleasure to host not only what is a a great American who's written a great book, but a great American who's also been very involved with uh, AHS over its existence. And so it's a real pleasure to welcome Professor Will Inboden here with us to discuss his new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the War on the Brink. Will is the my copy too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Copy too. So Will is the executive director and the William Powers Jr. Chair at the Clement Center for National Security at the University of Texas, Austin. He's also serves as professor at the LBG School of Public Affairs, a distinguished scholar at the Robert S. Strauss Center for International Security and Law, and editor-in-chief of the Texas National Security Review, a great publication for those who might be uninitiated to it. He previously served as Senior Director for Strategic Planning on the National Security Council at the White House, at the Department of State, as a member of the Policy Planning Staff, and as a Special Advisor in the Office of International Religious Freedom. And most, most, most importantly, like I said, he is our Faculty Advisor at a UT Austin chapter and a frequent speaker on the AHS circuit. And so, Wilk, obviously, congratulations on the book, but thank you for being with us. Thanks, Gabe. It's great to be with you. And you did mention the most important part last there, which is I'm the faculty advisor for the AHS UT chapter and so honored to be a part of anything AHS is doing. We're excited to honor you and and talk about this book, which is a really a great book. So I thought I'd just kind of dive right in a little bit with sort of why you wrote the book and why now and so forth. Then we can kind of talk more about the substance. But this has been a long labor for you. I know seven, eight, or I think maybe up to 10 years when you first started kind of doing the research and it shows in the sense of the, I like many, when I get a nice big book, I quickly go actually to the bibliography and the footnotes and the acknowledgements before even starting at the front. But why did you decide to write this? I mean, Reagan is not some obscure figure. He might be controversial even today in some ways, but in general, a general acknowledgement, especially on, on Reagan's foreign policy. So why did you want to write the book? And now that you've written it, and it's out, what do you feel you've actually accomplished with it? Thanks, Gabe. So there's really three main reasons why I decided to write the book. And it, it was, you know, it certainly evolved over time and yeah, it did take a you know, better part of a decade. But the first is drawing on my previous time as a policymaker, which you mentioned in my introduction, I had came of age, I was in high school during the Reagan administration. So I was not old enough to serve in the Reagan administration, but having served in the George W. Bush administration and then worked in Congress in the 1990s, I had developed an appreciation kind of after the fact for a lot of the Reagan administration's national security strategies and policies and legacies. And over time, just felt like as a, as a policymaker, I want to go back and, and take a fresh look at those and just understand more how this administration did put together its Cold War strategy and its related policies and what they get right and what they get wrong. The second part is, as a scholar, as a historian in particular, it seemed to be kind of the sweet spot of a moment to do a Reagan book because enough time had elapsed since he left office, you know, it's now over three decades ago, that the judgments of history can start to be rendered, you know, where we're past most of the partisan passions of the day. We have a little bit more perspective. We largely know how the story ended. 
But meanwhile, because it takes so long for the federal government to declassify archival documents, you know, CIA assessments, State Department, National Security Council, Pentagon internal memos, transcripts of Reagan's meetings with foreign heads of state, a lot of those had only just become available for the first time in the last five, 10 years. And so um, I was one of the first scholars able to look at a lot of those newly declassified documents. And yet we're also still speaking as a scholar here, recent enough since Reagan left office that quite a few people who had served with him served under him were still alive. And I was able to interview quite a few of them too. So that scholarly window is a second reason. And here's a third one, which I hope is particularly relevant for the students and recent graduates on the call, those who came of age after the Reagan years. As is now in my role as a professor and teaching students and following scholarship, I started to worry about a creeping sense in some sectors that the peaceful end of the Cold War was inevitable that the collapse of the Soviet Union was somehow foreordained by structural factors out there, and that American policy, especially Reagan's policy and leadership, really played little to no key role, that he kind of got lucky. He happened to be the, you know, the right guy at the right place when all these other things, the tides of history were working in his favor. And, and I call that the inevitability fallacy, this fallacy that, of course, things would work out just fine. The Cold War would end peacefully. There'd be no nuclear war. The Soviet Union would collapse. So I, I wanted to you know, take a fresh look at the history and you know, make an argument that individual leadership matters, that in this case, American policy really mattered, and that things could have turned out differently and in a much, much less positive outcome. So I wanted to restore that sense of contingency, of leadership, of decision-making in history and being able to shift it and nudge it in some better directions. Just on that third reason there, did you feel that way going into the research, i.e., you already knew whether from you experienced it as a young man, uh, the Reagan years, whether as your work in government, whether as a scholar and other matters, you already knew that this was not an inevitable end to the Cold War. And it took individual agency by President Reagan and those around him, and ultimately, obviously, by Mikhail Gorbachev and others as well. But it took that agency, or that's actually something that you came into it a bit open-minded, or there's never monocausality. It could be multiple things at the same time. And actually, through your work and your research, you are now coming more decisively to the collusion saying, you know, if Reagan isn't elected, or he was almost assassinated, right, so if he doesn't survive, that these things could have actually gone very differently. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And, you know, no one is perfectly objective. Everyone comes to a project with their own biases and presuppositions. And I certainly had mine, but let me answer that in two parts. First is in my much younger years, when I was in high school and then early college years, I would have described myself as much more of a young man of the left. I was very critical of Reagan. I even have a humorous anti-Reagan poster that I put in the book, which was on my bedroom wall in high school. And so my earliest assessment of Reagan, you know, many years ago, while he was still in office and shortly afterwards was very negative. Now, over time, when I became a policymaker and you know migrated more to the right and became more conservative, I developed a much more favorable assessment of him. And so when I started this project in roughly a decade ago, I went into it with a generally favorable assessment of Reagan and his policies and a general sense that, yes, his policies and leadership made a decisive difference. So that was my bias. And you know, every scholar has one. I need to come clean about that. That said, over the course of my research, that 
conclusion became much more strongly reinforced. And even I you know, became surprised at some of my particular findings over, I think, just how decisive of a difference Reagan and his strategy did make. And so even though I was, in a sense, favorably disposed to think that or appreciate it, I also wanted to be open to revising my assessments. I did revise my assessments in some other ways. But on that one, it was strongly reinforced. And if anything, I uncovered some new evidence that I think make an even stronger case for, for that. So just on the revising assessments and your role now, obviously, as a professor and the wall of books behind you in your office, at the time, you know, Reagan certainly was reviled by the academy for all the reasons that he may have been praised by others in that way. How has the academy's view of him changed or evolved in the, you know, 30 years or so that he has left office? I mean, I history, the subsequent events, as you put it, ending up obviously very peacefully and well, I would hope may have lessened some of that vehemence, plus maybe more dislike for more recent Republican presidents <laughs> in some parts of the academy. But when you've been working on this book for a decade and you're kind of sharing with colleagues and so forth at conferences or or at UT you know, do people start still looking at you funny and, and they kind of like you? Or how is he viewed today in the academy? Yeah, I would say overall, it's a very mixed view in the academy today. And again, it's hard to generalize about these things, but I'll, I'll try to give some specifics there. So I'm, again, going to speak with some generalities, but it's safe to say during Reagan's presidency, during the 1980s, and then the immediate years afterwards, early 1990s, I think the academy was you know, overwhelmingly opposed to him, right? I mean, he was you know, ridiculed as a lightweight, as a warmonger, as a neo-fascist. I mean, really you know, horrible invective and abuse hurled against him. He had very few academic defenders. That began to change somewhat in the late 1990s. Once, you know, the Iron Curtain falls, the Soviet Union collapses, and a combination of testimonials from people who had lived under Soviet communism and then the opening of the archives of many of those Warsaw Pact and, you know, the Soviet government itself, as well as the openings, the beginnings of the openings of some records from the Reagan administration. Some scholars, such as my graduate school mentor at Yale, John Lewis Gaddis, took a fresh look and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, this guy Reagan had a more clear strategy and, you know, Soviet communism was as malevolent and evil as he said it was. And maybe we as scholars need to give him more of a fair shake here. So you had the beginnings of some dissenting voices. Uh, Sean Lentz at Princeton would be another one who started to have a little bit, even though he's more man of left, like, ah, yeah, maybe there was more to this Reagan than we thought. So now, you know, moving forward to today, you will still find quite a few scholars who are more disdainful of him. Some of them, the older generation who, you know, their formative years were in the 70s and 80s. In that sense, they still hold on to those partisan passions of way back then, right? So it's the, the same critique they, they would have been making in the faculty lounge in the 1980s are still making today of Reagan. Others will be scholars who favor structural factors or maybe have studied more of the Soviet Union itself who want to give the structural factors or Gorbachev a little more credit for the peaceful end of the Cold War and are, you know, somewhat dismissive of Reagan, less on ideological grounds, but more just that's their particular framing of the world. In my sense, the younger generation of scholars, you know, the ones who came of age after the peaceful end of the Cold War, ones who are doing their PhDs now or have in recent years, are generally more open-minded and have been taking a fresh look at this and are really just studying Reagan 
not as an object of partisan passions, but just as a figure of history, right? The same way they would study Nixon or Ford or Carter or, you know, any other previous president. And again, there, some of them are coming out with, you know, pretty favorable assessments of him. Simon Miles at Duke, one of my former PhD students, would be a good example here. You know, he's not a Reagan partisan or anything, but just based on his, you know, objective reading of the historical record, thinks that Reagan, you know, strategy was very notable in the peaceful end of the Cold War. Whereas other younger scholars uh, are still approaching him with more skepticism too. I will say that we're just at the beginnings of, I think, this fresh new era of Reagan scholarship. And so any of our, our audience today who is thinking about doing a PhD, you know, heaven forbid, right? I think over the next 10 to 15 years, there are dozens of potential dissertations to be written on any number of aspects of Reagan administration foreign policy in the 1980s. My book is a synthetic overview. It is by no means the last word on the subject. And I hope it's just the beginnings of a fresh conversation. And so I think there's you know tremendous potential for a real flowering of studies, you know, like I said, over the next generation on Reagan's foreign policies. Well, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is that even today, you're more likely to see positive views of Mikhail Gorbachev in the academy than you are of uh, Ronald Reagan, even though Gorbachev obviously <laughs> came of age and still presided over a fairly nasty system. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyways, it's hard to kind of shake that. So let me dive into the book. So the book is really about his presidency, not about his life. Um, yeah, it's not way. a biography of him. Yeah, exactly. And so after the introduction, it really actually opens with the first chapter is really about the campaign, let's call it, or the run up, the Carter years, the run up to Reagan's election. And I think even before anybody might pick up your book, pretty common knowledge that Reagan ran on dissatisfaction with the Carter administration's foreign policy, but also I think that is a bit more subtle, a repudiation of Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford's foreign policy as well in that way. And those are some of the big debates. And we remember, obviously, he challenged Ford directly in 1976. So when you were kind of like starting off the book, how does Reagan go from being this insurgent view, this insurgent minority truly understanding of the nature of the Soviet system, and to some also the nature of the United States, um, and yet wins this massive victory. I mean, people talk about the 84 campaign, and in 1980, he wins, I think it's 44 states against the sitting president, right? Yeah. In some ways, even more impressive than the 84 re-election. He wins a massive victory, and within a short amount of time, his view seems to become the new normal, the dominant view. So maybe you could walk us a little bit through is he's running against two different viewpoints, one in his own party, and one obviously that of the sitting president, wipes the floor with them, and then very quickly manages to establish his view, it seems like, in that way. How does that happen? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'll try to do it briefly, because there's obviously, there's a lot of history there. But uh, you're exactly right in how you frame it, that let's say by 1980, you know, when the Reagan campaign is really getting underway, there are three schools of thought within the United States on how to deal with the Soviet Union. Two of those schools largely within the Republican Party, a rift, a debate within the Republican Party, then the third one, the predominant view among the Democratic Party. So, so first, the view among the Democratic Party, you know, primarily exemplified by the Carter presidency, uh, a little bit earlier by the McGovern candidacy, uh, we could say, was, you know, still viewed the Soviet Union as an adversary, 
but wanted to look for ways to accommodate the Soviet Union, to dial back, you know, American overstretch in certainly in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, was very critical of American support for right-wing military governments that were anti-communist, especially in Latin America and Asia. That's why Carter, you know, tries to pull off U.S. troops out of South Korea. It's a military dictatorship. It may be anti-communist, but it's a problem for us. And looks for areas of cooperation with the Soviet Union. You know, can we do a big arms control agreement with you? If we stop you know, building and expanding our military, maybe you Soviets will stop building yours as well. Can we find some sort of peaceful coexistence, if you will? And so that's one view, that, let's say the Democratic view. Then within the Republican Party, there's a real rift between the Nixon-Ford-Kissinger wing, which had embraced detente, the detente framework, and then the Reagan insurgency. The detente framework also sought more to coexist with the Soviet Union, still wanted to maintain some points of strength by supporting anti-communist military regimes in Latin America and Asia, you know, kind of have them almost function as American proxies, helping to contain the Soviet Union, and then maintain some sort of balance of power. You know, kind of this tacit agreement with the Soviet Union, you can have your sphere of influence, we'll have ours. We'll look for a few ways to reduce tensions, also with some arms control agreements. We won't bother you on human rights. You know, the way you manage your internal affairs, we may not like it, but it's your business. We won't disturb you on it. And then the third, of course, is the Reagan view. And the Reagan view applies its critique to both the detente framework of Nixon and Ford and Kissinger, and also the Carter framework, you know, like I said, a little bit more accommodationist, especially in Carter's first two years. So what those two others had in common is they saw the Soviet Union as a problem or a challenge to be contained, to be managed, and to coexist with. It did not envision the defeat or dissolution of the Soviet Union. Rather, it saw it as a permanent feature of the geopolitical landscape. You know, they've been with us for, you know, at that point, 60 years, and they'll be with us for potentially another century. We may not like it, but they're not going to go away. And therefore, we need to focus on, you know, nation building a home and getting our own house in order. That had started to fray a little bit in Carter's last year, year and a half, when the Soviets invade Afghanistan, you know, despite their promises to behave well with detente. And when, you know, Carter and his team, especially he's a big Brzezinski, realize, ah, you know, the Soviets are not as agreeable or are willing to reduce tensions as we had hoped. The Reagan view, you know, I'll frame it this way as well. Nixon, Ford, Carter, most other previous American presidents had seen the Cold War as a Great power contest standoff that happened to have a battle of ideas component. Reagan reframes it. He sees it as primarily a battle of ideas. He doesn't see the Soviet Union as a nation state to be contained. He sees it as an idea to be defeated, as a system to be defeated. And he thinks that it is uniquely vulnerable. He sees vulnerabilities in the Soviet system. It's decrepit economy. It's oppression of its own people. It's imperial overstretch in the billions of dollars it's funding to maintain its communist satellites around the world, as well as, of course, it's Warsaw Pact vassal states. And so he calls for a campaign to, to actually, like I said, defeat and bring an end to the Soviet Union. His famous phrase is, my theory of the case in the Cold War is, we win, they lose. But he also wants to do that peacefully. He wants to keep the Cold War cold. He doesn't want it to turn hot. And so while during the campaign, both he and a lot of his critics emphasize more the pressure, the confrontation side of his new Cold War strategy, we can also see all along there also was that diplomacy side to it as well. And we can talk a little bit more getting into it. In that place, I mean, a big role in the general campaign with Carter yeah. and Layer on top of that, obviously, the overthrow of the Shah in Iran, the Islamic Revolution, the hostage crisis, really, which really sunk Carter in a lot of ways. How much of this debate actually plays in the 1980 Republican primary? 
Reagan sort of begins, I mean, ends up running away with it, but he does lose the first caucus in Iowa to George H.W. Bush. He ultimately yeah. does pick George H.W. Bush as his vice president. And when George H.W. Bush becomes president after Reagan 1988, most people do feel that there is a bit of a turn, a bit back more to somewhat of a realist, let's say, approach to things. So how does this actually play out within the party in 1980 or in the early years of his presidency when he's selecting his cabinet and other advisors? Yeah, no, great question. And I, you touched on it earlier. I don't want to lose that thread. So, yeah, so during the 1980 campaign, the Republican primary, Reagan is really the only candidate running on this, we call it Reaganite platform, right? His other main rivals uh, are initially John Connolly, the former Texas governor and treasury secretary under Nixon, and then George H.W. Bush. And they both, in different ways, are part of the Nixon Ford Kissinger detente framework. You're not advocating weakness, but still more coexistence with the Soviet Union. And it's initially a close run thing. As you said, Reagan loses the, the initial Iowa caucus. He comes close to losing the New Hampshire primary, but eventually he wins the campaign. But he still he wins the nomination with a divided and fractured Republican Party, and he's got to figure out who's going to be my running mate. And so, even though he at the time was not personally close to George H. W. Bush, as an effort to unite the party, he offers the running mate slot, the vice presidency, to Bush, and it does work as a political matter. They do unite the party, and they then, of course, they eventually win a pretty strong victory. But it needs to be said, I think it's fair to say from the historical record that it's not so much that Reagan and Bush win in November 1980, it's that Carter loses. Like a lot of the votes were more against Carter because people are so fed up with the sclerotic economy and stagflation and America humiliated by the hostage crisis and these other things that we've mentioned, that they're willing to take a chance on this Reagan guy and Bush as the alternative. And so it's not as strong of a positive mandate for the Reagan foreign policy. And partly for that reason, as Reagan's putting together his initial foreign policy team, they represent a range of views. You know, you've got right. he picks Al Haig as a secretary of state. He's very much from the Nixon Ford Kissinger wing. Then Weinberger is secretary of defense, a little more Reaganite. You know, we won't go into all of them there, but it's a pretty divided government initially. And that causes Reagan some problems. But I think, you know, back to your original question, Winning is a great formula in politics in terms of once you do control the White House and you can start picking people and putting your policies in place, that at least partially or temporarily will resolve or paper over some of these differences within the party. And then the second big factor is, do your policies start working? Do they start succeeding? And at the end of the day, I think average voters in particular are not terribly ideological one way or another on foreign policy. They just want an American foreign policy that works. And I, over time, I think Reagan is able to show that his principles, you know, which we can talk about in detail, work. The final thing, of course, is the presidency is the great bully pulpit. And Reagan, more than most other presidents, spends a lot of time trying to educate and persuade the American people. This is what my strategy is. These are what my values are. This is why I think they're going to work. So, you know, he's known sometimes dismissively as the great communicator. I think that's very high praise because he takes being a democratically elected president seriously. And he knows that one source of his strength will be public support and political capital. And you can't take that for granted. You have to continually make the case to the American people and, of course, your own party base.
It's a great point of obviously about winning is an elixir for your views, no matter what. Um, I but, highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you highly recommend political victories. Uh, I know. Uh, we'll put your blurb on the back of that next pollster book about I highly recommend political victories. But your next point about the policy starting to work, also making a big difference, is also an important point. And on that, I mean, my sense both from the history but also from reading your book is that in the early years for Reagan, that's not really the case so much, right? I mean, he's got a bunch of alliance issues, let's call it, in different places, in, in Japan, a little bit in Korea, and, and certainly in Europe. You know, he's got a suite of Soviet leaders, as he's put it, that keeps dying on me. And so the second part, let's call it, of the kind of Reaganite vision of engaging or pressure, but also engagement can't really happen. And so the scary years, right, the year of maximum danger is 82 or 83, I can't remember, right? Exactly. In the first, So how does he manage to maintain, it seems like, pretty good control and support for that vision, especially in those first two or three years where things seem shakiest? Yeah, no, it's a very important point. I'm glad you highlight that from the book. I mean, I'll, I'll you know, to make sure everyone appreciates this, if Reagan had to run for re-election in November of 82 or even November of 83, he almost surely would have lost, no matter who the Democrats ran, wow. ran against him, right? I mean, yeah, we can't know that for sure, but I'm quite confident that assessment. His approval ratings are very low. So, but one nice thing about being elected to a four-year term as president, which is pretty much guaranteed, you know, unless you get impeached, is he knew from the beginning, I've got four years to put my strategy in place, to put my policies in place, and to try to make them work. And they're not going to work overnight. You know, very few major policy revolutions do, but he believed that they're, they're right things to do. And he believed that given four years, that by the time his re-election would roll around in November of 84, his policies would be paying tremendous results. And so in that sense, we got to give him some credit for some foresight and strategic plan. How does he know that? I mean, that's the thing that I was always both impressed, but to a certain degree, I don't know if scare is the right word, but in every sort of public setting, he just exuded confidence. Obviously, and not only his own view, but in his view of the Soviet Union, that he sees them, as you point, a system that is weak and decrepit, that is full of internal inconsistencies, and we should treat it that way, right? And, I, and you talk about, I think, in the book about how he looks at Soviet farmland, right? And sort of saying, like, you know, these guys have so much farmland that they can't feed themselves. They have real problems here. And yet, yeah. you can't just simply say to his political detractors, the American people, just trust me, wait three or four years or five or six years, and we'll see it. So are there moments in private? He was a big journal writer, right? Are there moments in private where he actually expresses at least some some worry or some sort of skepticism about what he's saying in public? Yeah. So Reagan is, even though he's a very faithful diary writer and journaler, and you know, I read every word of every page of those diaries, you know, which are absolutely fascinating, he's not terribly introspective in terms of expressing that self-doubt. So he possesses this almost preternatural sense of self-confidence. I don't think it's arrogance, but he's a man of ideas and convictions, and, and you are not easily moved from those. If they happen to be the right ideas and convictions, that's a great virtue. If they're the wrong ones, well, that's a real problem, right? In this case, I do think they were the right ideas and convictions, at least for the time, and he held to them very tenaciously. But there's a couple more practical things going on. First of all is he could point with a lot of confidence to the fact that, hey, we tried the alternatives in the 70s and how those work out for us, right? So detente or even, you know, accommodation of the Soviet Union results in the Soviets invading Afghanistan, them advancing much further ahead of the United States in the military balance. The American economy is still a mess. Communist regimes just over the previous decade had taken over in South Vietnam, in Laos, in Cambodia, in South Yemen, in Ethiopia, in Angola, in Nicaragua, in Grenada. You get the picture, right? And so he could say, all right, 
you may not believe in my policies. I do, but you may not. But what's the alternative? We tried it for the last decade under three other presidents and it didn't work. So there's also that practical fact. But going back to his own confidence and his ideas and convictions, he knew that it was going to take some time. And he thought, well, let's at least give these a try because, you know, as someone who believes in open and free societies and free markets and religious freedom and human rights, and also just the inefficiencies and depredations of Soviet communism, he just thought, you know, this thing just, it cannot continue to sustain itself. There's practical evidence, as you mentioned, they couldn't feed their own people. That's why they have to buy billions of dollars worth of wheat from the United States. People vote with their feet. Reagan talks about this eloquently in his 1982 Westminster address, right? The Berlin Wall is not put up to keep, you know, illegal immigrants out. It's to keep, you know, the people of, you know, communist East Germany trapped inside and not let them flee to West Berlin. The Iron Curtain is, again, put up to keep the people from fleeing westward away from communism. So Reagan looks at all those economic facts and lifestyle facts and political facts and things. This is just not sustainable. And so let's try putting more pressure on that and speaking the truth about that system. Is there a turning point? And I don't know if that's one of the, it seems like history moves very quickly in those years, but is there a turning point where it seems like he, as a consequence of it, either those around him or in general, the party of the American people actually comes to change their mind and say, okay, he was right on these things. His understanding, particular of communism and particular in its form of the Soviet Union is absolutely correct. Yeah. So he always had the beginnings of a, at least a base of the support, maybe among 30 to 40% of the American people who, you know, shared his hawkishness and his, you know, commitment to confronting the Soviet Union. So he starts with that. And then I do think over, especially in the 1982 to 84 window, a combination of Reagan's policies and speeches and then Soviet actions do start to persuade another critical mass of kind of that middle sector of the country. Uh, maybe there's something to this. I'll just mention a few highlights of them, right? So first, if we look at a series of Reagan's most notable speeches, he's making a sustained case against the evil of Soviet communism and for the virtues of free societies. And no other president had ever made that sustained case. So in 81, he goes to Notre Dame and says that, you know, the West will transcend communism and dismiss it as some bizarre chapter in human history. In 82, he says Marxism, Leninism will end up on the ash heap of history. In 83, he calls them the evil empire. So, okay. Criticized for a lot of that, but you know, some of the American people are hearing him say that and they're looking at what they know about Soviet communism. Yeah, that kind of resonates. At the same time, he's also talking about the positive vision of a free society. Again, you know, his call for, you know, global support for the expanse of freedom in Westminster in 82. And again, few previous American presidents had talked that way. American people were not used to hearing that. So they're, right. that's persuading them as well. But then Soviet actions are frankly helping Reagan's case also. So when the Soviets shoot down Korean Airlines Flight 007, it's a troubling episode in history. Viewers not familiar with it. The Soviets maliciously shoot down a civilian airliner, killing 269 innocent civilians, including about 60 Americans. And then they, they lie about it, try to deny it and cover it up. When Reagan is trying to negotiate with the Soviets on arms control and they walk out of the Geneva talks and refuse to even negotiate anymore. When Soviet soldiers are engaging in vicious atrocities against civilians in Afghanistan, when Marxist insurgents are trying to topple the government in El Salvador. I mean, you know, we can, these different cases, people hear Reagan denouncing Soviet communism, and then they see these different episodes of evidence, ah, this is not a very good system. That helps to make the case as well. And then finally, at the beginning of 1984, when he deepens his outreach to the Soviets, saying, I don't deny, I stand by everything I said about how awful they are, but I also want to look for a peaceful way out of this conflict. 
And I also want to extend the hand of diplomacy of dialogue to them too. And Americans say, okay, he's serious about that. And we like that he's standing firm, but he also liked that he's trying to keep the Cold War cold and not let it turn into a hot war of nuclear destruction. That dynamic, which are not contradictory in practice, right? Being able to call it for what it is, but also say, but we want to engage with it. That seems in somehow too complicated for a lot of other American leaders, When whether it's talking about the Chinese Communist Party today or the last 25 years or the Islamic Republic of Iran. So often we see leaders tone down, let's call it some language, or not want to call it for what it is for fear of not being able to engage with those very same governments in that way. Why is it that Reagan was able to do this seemingly naturally? It's kind of the first question. And the second question is, and I don't know if your research went this far, which is, How did the Soviets actually see this? I mean, is there evidence that they were going to reject offers of engaging with them because of, you know, Reagan's rhetoric and calling them for what it is? Or at the end of the day, the reality is still such that, you know, they were going to engage no matter what. Look, there's a lot there. I'll try to give, (laughs) I'll try to give the main highlights to it. First of all, I'll take the last part first. Initially, the Soviets hate and are terrified by Reagan, right? A couple of scholars, Christopher Andrew at Cambridge puts it well. He says, never throughout the history of the existence of the Soviet Union, certainly the Cold War, had to been there an American president detested and loathed as much as the Soviet Union hated Ronald Reagan in his first term, right? And it drives them crazy when he denounces them as the evil empire at some forth. And so they really don't like that. At the same time, they are, you know, intrigued by some of his outreach efforts. They come to have a grudging respect for what they see with revitalizing the United States as a strong and powerful and leading nation again. You know, Reagan himself would often say the only thing the Soviets respect is strength. And so he wanted to restore American strength. And there's a really important part of his early strategy, which I try to stress in the book. I haven't seen many other scholars pick up on this. From the beginning, even as early as, you know, he takes office in 1981, he's putting together this pressure campaign on the Soviet Union, but it's not just pressure to deter their aggression or to weaken their system. It's also pressure on them to produce a reformist leader. And this is really, really important. So his hope for negotiation is there from the beginning and his hope to, you know, strengthen the few potential reformist or moderate voices within the Soviet system. So four or four and a half years later, when Gorbachev comes to power, Reagan is able to embrace him more quickly because he'd been looking for a Gorbachev to come along. You know, I'm not giving Reagan full credit for Gorbachev coming to power. That's largely a product of internal Soviet dynamics. We need to be clear on that. But the key thing is Reagan at least is helping to create some of the conditions out of which a Gorbachev emerges and had been looking for a you know negotiating partner all along. And that's also why Gorbachev himself is excited to meet Reagan and go toe-to-toe with him and see what he can make of this American leader. And so all those different strands are coming into his policy. You know, the key strategic concept is he integrates force and diplomacy. Too many of our current policy debates say, well, there's either a military option or a diplomatic option between his opposites. You know, that is conceptually wrong. You know, rather military strength reinforces diplomacy. Power enhances dialogue and negotiations. And Reagan knew that intuitively. He put it into practice. While he was always reaching out to the Soviets and wanting to negotiate with them, he wanted to do it with the world's strongest economy and the world's strongest military at his back. And he wanted the Soviets to negotiate from a posture of weakness. And he's very, very explicit about that. So, Will, on that point in particular, and I'm always leery of making analogies because there are so many things that can be quite different. How is it that Reagan is able to focus efforts on, let's say, pressure to try and create a reformist leader, as you put it, versus Mm -hmm. pressure to try and bring down the regime? 
how does one uh, is threading that needle seems overly complicated, if not just pure luck in a lot of different ways. And you can think of a number of situations or challenges that we are faced with today where somehow trying to walk that line or bridge that divide is very fraught with where that could go. Yeah, you're right. It's a very delicate balance. I do think Reagan overall manages it very well. I think it's very clear from the historical evidence that these two strains of that pressure and that outreach of trying to defeat that system and bring it down while also you know, negotiating with it are both there. Sometimes it just takes uh, artifice and even a little bit of deception in his part. I'll give you an example. Is It's fascinating to read the transcripts of his summit meetings with Gorbachev or likewise Gorbachev's meetings with Secretary of State George Shultz, you know, other American leaders. And Gorbachev will often call the Americans out and say, I know what you're up to. You think you can collapse our system. You can defeat our system. You know, well, you can't do it. And then Reagan kind of say, oh, we're not necessarily trying to do that. We just want to improve your behavior. You know, we want to work with you, right? And so, you know, whereas deep down in his heart of hearts and looking at his policies, Reagan's trying to do just that. So, yes, so sometimes there is a little bit of diplomatic sleight of hand involved. But at the end of the day, Reagan left the Soviets no choice but to negotiate with him. They were feeling such acute pressure. And they were also terrified of nuclear war. They're particularly terrified that his you know, military modernization was giving the United States such an asymmetric advantage over them that they felt, especially under Gorbachev, like they had no choice to come to the negotiating table. His deployment of our you know, intermediate range nuclear missiles in Europe in the fall of 1983 plays a key role here. We can go into the details later if you want, but Gorbachev says those missiles are like an American pistol pointed at our head, right? And so he's really feeling the pressure. Now, you know, in turn, it was up to Reagan to be offering some of those diplomatic outlets and those diplomatic off-ramps and those negotiations too. But you had to do it in a way that the Soviets felt so much pressure, they had nowhere else to turn except for to the negotiating table. What is the, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning about critiques of Reagan that maybe are a little unfair and have to do more with the person making the critique than the critique itself. But what do you think is the best critique uh, out there of how Reagan kind of led during those eight years? As you put it, a lot of people said, oh, he's destabilizing, or Richard said, he's pointing a gun to my head. Reagan probably said, that's right. I, I am trying to destabilize, right? So, I mean, he's kind of leaning into it. So what is the best case that you've seen and through your work and that you see where you're saying, you know what, actually, like these guys, the critics actually got it a little bit more right than wrong here? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have a perfect answer for it, but I'll speculate on a couple of things here. And again, you know, obviously this is all, you know, all those disclaimers apply. So Reagan is certainly engaged in brinksmanship with his you know, military modernization, not just the modernization itself, but, you know, the very provocative exercises that we're doing. You know, John Lehman, as Secretary of the Navy, is really doing some cutting edge stuff with, you know, deploying our naval exercises kind of right up the Soviet's throat, you know, deploying those missiles, increasing our support for the different anti-communist uncertainties around the world. Looking back, I make the case, I think those policies largely worked, but that was very risky. Uh, so as a thought experiment, let's say perhaps that Chernyenko had lived, you know, he was a Soviet dictator for most of 1984. Let's say he had lived longer. He was more of a hardliner, maybe had a few mild reformist impulses, but nothing like Gorbachev. And let's say the Soviets started to feel really cornered and under pressure. You know, there were a couple of moments when they came fairly close to launching a strike against us. You know, some of the details there are still murky, but brinksmanship is inherently risky. And there could have been another outcome where a cornered, wounded, angry, you know, Soviet Union would lash out feeling like it had no other choice. So that's, and I know Reagan wrestled with that. He worried about that. He was mindful of that as a concern, but that was certainly one risk. I'd put that out there. 
I mean, it's it's an accept. I guess he he's clearly saw it as an acceptable risk, right? I mean, it wasn't that he was unaware of this. He was very conscious about this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, but at the same time, it's still a real risk, and you can't fully. He was always fascinated, very curious about what are the Soviets thinking, what are the Soviet people thinking, what are the Soviet leaders thinking, but also worried about it because he couldn't quite get into their heads, and he knew what his intentions were that he wanted this conflict to end peacefully, on favorable terms for America, but peacefully. But he also knew that you know whether from misperception, miscalculation or just sheer aggression or terror that they could potentially lash out. So that'd be one. I think another area of critique is even though by and large, considering the other unsatisfying alternatives, I think the Reagan doctrine was the right policy of supporting these anti-communist forces and insurgents, but it entailed some ugly moral compromises, certainly some risks for the United States, ethical, moral, and strategic. You can't always control what proxy forces are doing. You can't always control what some of those outcomes are. So there were certainly some destabilizing risks with some of those conflicts in Latin America and Africa and Asia. I'm going to end with a couple questions on the legacy of the Reagan doctrine, as you kind of put it, but one more before we get there, which is you've structured your book more or less chronologically throughout the Reagan presidency. Is there an episode, an incident, a relationship in the book that even after doing all the research, even after writing draft after draft after draft, you still are not actually sure about your assessment, let's say, of that relationship? And maybe it is, as you implored at the beginning, for somebody else to dig deeper or or to go interview more people or whatever it is to kind of really understand it. But what is it about? I mean, it's such a, again, you write so well and, and it's a really great book, but what is it that even you coming away from it? Is there an incident or a place that you're like, you know what, I'm actually not as sure that I understand this fully. Yeah, I'll mention two of them. They're both pretty specialized, specific incidents. I'll try to do this briefly, but they're still, I lay out the best evidence I can in the book, but I hope you'll see I'm pretty, you know, confessional readers in the book. There's still a little bit of an uncertainty with this. Uh, in some of this, you'll find the footnotes. The first is fall of 1983. Beirut is in civil war. Lebanon's in civil war. Earlier, Israel had also invaded Lebanon. It's a real mess. Reagan and some of our European allies have deployed peacekeepers there to try to cobble together some sort of fragile peace. And American peacekeepers are Marines. A Hezbollah-sponsored terrorist group launches an awful attack against the suicide bombing on the Marine barracks in Beirut and kills 241 Marines. It's the worst loss of life for the United States since the Vietnam War. Here's the ongoing puzzle is the United States never takes retaliatory action against the Hezbollah for doing that terrorist attack. And some of Reagan's key advisors, especially Secretary of Defense Weinberger, say that Reagan never ordered a retaliatory strike. Others, such as the National Security Advisor, Ben McFarland, say, no, Reagan did order the retaliatory strike, but DOD dragged its feet. Weinberger and the Joint Chiefs didn't want to carry it out. And Reagan just didn't follow through and enforce it. I Readers can read the episode of my book and see how I treat it. I'm still not fully sure what happened there. My best guess based on the available evidence, is that Reagan did not order the retaliatory strike. He mused about it, he thought about it, but he, for a number of reasons, decided not to. But I'm not fully clear on that. Second episode is in 1985. This concerns American energy policy and kind of economic pressure on the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, at that point, its economy is an even worse mess than before. Their main source of hard currency is oil revenue from exporting oil. Sounds similar to what we're dealing with with Putin and Russia today. And 
in the fall of 1985, Saudi Arabia dramatically increases its oil production to drive down global oil prices. And yeah, the numbers I have in my book, but something like oil prices fall by, you know, 75%, something like from, you know, 20 something barrel down to six or eight a barrel. And that starves the Soviets of something like $20 billion a year in hard currency, which was a very significant part of their budget at the time. Here's the puzzle. Did Reagan and his team explicitly ask the Saudis, will you increase your oil output? I think there's pretty good evidence they did. It's circumstantial, but it's pretty strong. And I laid that out in the book. But the transcripts of Reagan's meetings with the Saudi king are not declassified yet. CIA Director Bill Casey flew to Saudi during this time. Some people say that he also asked the Saudis to do it, but no records were kept of those meetings. There's another prominent scholar at your alma mater, Georgetown, who says, no, Reagan never asked the Saudis to do that. That was just incidental. So that's another one of those historical puzzles. I think I know what my conclusion is, but we still need more evidence. It's still one of the mysteries. Yeah. And also in both cases, it kind of goes into, you know, how detailed and involved was Reagan is on, let's say, executing some of these policies, which I think at other parts in the book, you actually go into great length about how he was very involved despite having a bit more of a decentralized power structure with his cabinet and so forth. So it kind of goes into that. And also, I mean, just, you know, brief comment on that. In both of these cases, his advisors were split. They were divided. You know, I mentioned the divisions over retaliatory strikes are not in Lebanon. But in the Saudi oil case, Vice President Bush did not want the U.S. to have the Saudis increase oil up, you know, for some plausible, complicated reasons. Whereas Weinberger and Casey and I think Schultz, Schultz, I don't know what his views were on that, but they did. So other times when Reagan's advisors are split, he will sometimes, he's pretty conflict averse and it's not all, on issues like that would not always make make a clear, decisive decision. So let me go to the last question, which is the legacy of kind of Reagan foreign policy today, which is you've had three Republican presidents since Reagan, his own vice president, the son of his vice president, and then Donald Trump. They have all three in different ways, not exactly here to what you might call, you know, kind of the Reaganite doctrine in that way. George H.W. a bit more realist. George W. Bush, in at least in parts of the administration, maybe even more kind of ideological than Reagan was. And, and Trump, I'm, I'm not sure what the vector is for Trump on some of those things, but certainly in different ways. But it does seem like today compared to maybe 10 years ago when you started to write the book, that the party today, in terms of how it views Reagan's foreign policy, is in a different place than when you started to write the book 10 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not something I think many would have predicted. So in your, just in your assessment, like where does the Reagan foreign policy view fit in today amongst the parties? It's still the dominant view. Is it gone, you know, fight for its life in these ways? Or are there maybe there are elements of it that you think of are pretty still foundational, well-established, and the debates are about some consequences or at the margins? Again, just kind of curious for how you see that landscape today. Yeah, a few observations. I mean, first is most Republicans today, whether elected officials or grassroots Republicans, most of them, if you ask them, you know, who's your favorite president of the last 100 years, or certainly who's your favorite Republican president, most of them will still say Reagan. So there's great residual affection for Reagan. But when you drill down, they are not always going to then espouse, you know, Reaganite principles on foreign policy. You know, some of them will, but there's less of a hold of all those principles than there is, you know, general affection for him. One reason, frankly, why I wrote the book is trying to you know show today's audience here's what a Reaganite foreign policy was here's exactly what it meant in the 1980s you know draw your own conclusions for what it may mean today but let's at least deal with a common agreement on a set of facts in the historical record here the second observation is I don't know exactly what Reagan would do were he alive today were he present today it'd be you know historical malpractice right oh Reagan would say this Reagan would think that but I can speak pretty clearly to what he did in his own day and I just want to mention a few of those principles 
And I personally, and I've you know written elsewhere on this, do think that these are still worthy principles for Republicans and frankly all Americans to embrace today. Of course, Reagan was you know his formative years were the 1930s and 1940s, so the Great Depression and then World War II, and he was a fierce opponent of isolationism and a fierce critic of protectionism. So he believed very strongly in American international leadership rather than you know hiding behind or isolated repose in our own hemisphere. Here, he believed very strongly in an open and free trading order. And he really very strongly in American leadership in making those things happen. He's constantly warning against that. And in his own day, most domestic sentiment, Republican and Democrat, was protectionist. People wanted to put sanctions on Japan and other trade violators. And so those were not popular opinions he held at the time, but he held to them very strongly. Second, he's very committed, especially in his last six years in office, to promoting human rights and democracy. He's a very freedom-minded president. Those sometimes become caricatured, especially in the wake of Iraq and Afghanistan, of, oh, you, know, you can't do that at gunpoint. Reagan wasn't trying to do it at gunpoint. He's trying to do it through diplomacy, through economic policy, through rhetorical support, and all the other instruments of foreign policy. But he did that because he thought it was the right thing. He thought it was important for moral consistency. And he thought it was better for the world, better for the United States, you know, free society societies make better allies. Allies, there's another one deeply committed to American allies. Look, no one needed to tell Reagan what a pain in the rear allies can be, how they will free ride on your defense, how they will make unreasonable demands, so they won't always keep faith with you. He knew all that. He dealt with all that. He managed with all that. But he still believed on balance allies are a unique source of American strength. They're an asymmetric advantage we have over totalitarian and autocratic societies that don't have real allies. And I think he's a great example of how we can make the most of our alliances and get tremendous strategic benefits from them. And then fourth, as I mentioned, a very clear commitment to integrating military power and strength with diplomacy and seeing those as, you know, two legs of the two prongs of the scissors, if you will, ready to pick your analogy. So his defense buildup was not just about deterring our adversaries. It was also about strengthening diplomacy. And if you look at it, he's actually quite cautious about deploying military force in combat. You know, he only puts American ground troops in combat once in his eight years in office in the Grenada invasion, which is over almost in a weekend, right? So he's not trying to get the United States in endless ground wars. In that sense, he's mindful of some of the lessons of Vietnam and even Korea before that. But he still believed in, you know, the diplomatic purposes of military power. So all those principles, are, I think, are ones that we would do well to take a fresh look at and embrace today. Well, congrats on the book. Really wonderful book. I hope uh, others, if they haven't started reading, they do. Good luck on the tour. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hamiltonian podcast. If you enjoyed, please give us a five-star rating. New episodes are released every other Tuesday, available on every major podcasting platform. To make sure you get notified whenever a new episode is released, be sure to subscribe or visit our website, www.alexanderhamiltonsociety.org.